Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. The book of Judges. Judges is not about self-righteous people, right? A judge, you think of judgmental. Uh, it's not also not how we think of a judge where someone's overseen in a court of law. Uh, a judge is a military or political leader in the kingdom of Israel. And now this book, Judges, takes place after Moses has led the people out of the promised land and after, or sorry, out of, the, out of Egypt of slavery, after Moses had led them out of slavery in Egypt and after Joshua has led them into the promised land. But the book really starts off with Joshua dying. And so Israel doesn't have a leader, but they have a command. And that command from God is, as you go into the promised land, you are to drive out the Canaanites who inhabit that land. And we kind of hear that in our modern sensibilities. We go, well, that's kind of mean. Who are these Canaanite people that seem to be there at the wrong place at the wrong time, and God just wants his people to push them out of the land? That doesn't seem fair. But there's a long backstory with these people. Uh, The Canaanites that inhabited the land, the people that were supposed to be driven out by the Israelites, they were an evil culture. Uh, They were a culture that was full of sexual oppression, a culture where they took their live children and sacrificed them on fires to the god Moloch. This was a destructive, decayed culture. And God had actually given them time to repent, but they didn't. And so as we think about this, it's not some innocent people who were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Rather, they were an evil culture. And as Israel moved into the land, God knew that they would actually be enticed by the Canaanites. They would see these people's culture as more sophisticated than their own. You know, Israel had been slaves in Egypt. And as they looked at the Canaanites, they would see a culture of wealth and a culture of Uh, lavish food in a culture that was highly sexualized, and they would be enticed to worship the Canaanites' gods. So not only were the Canaanites evil, but God knew that his own people would forsake him and worship the gods of the Canaanites. And so they were told to drive out the Canaanites out of the land. But they were told, when you do that, do not plunder them. Do not plunder the Canaanites. Don't take their stuff for loot. That's the way the cultures of the world do it. That's not how my people do it. And you may not enslave the Canaanites. That's what God told his people. Drive them out, but do not enslave them. Well, guess what happened? They didn't drive them out. Uh, You see in the map above me, uh, the promised land. And all the pink area is the area where Israel obeyed God and drove out the Canaanites. And the green area is the area where they were supposed to drive out the Canaanites, but they did not. So you really see that even in this time, Israel is committed to not obey God, even though they said that they would. And this makes the book of Judges pretty dark. Because what happens is we see that Israel's initial disobedience to not drive out the Canaanites creates this spiral, almost like their culture is going down the toilet bowl. And it goes through this cycle of 
of evil and then God saying, you need to repent and then them repenting. But then the next time they do evil, it's worse. And then they repent, but not really. And then the next time they do evil, it's even worse. And it just goes down and down and down. But even as we see that darkness, we'll see a God who is committed to his people. And see, that's the real hope in the book of Judges. It's not that the people get it. It's that God stays committed when people don't get it. So we're going to read Judges chapter 1, verse 1, through Judges 2, verse 5. If you open your book, I believe it starts on page 4. Lord, be with the reading and preaching of your word. Judges 1.1, after the death of Joshua, the Israelites inquired of the Lord, who will be the first to fight for us against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have handed the land over to him. Judah said to his brother Simeon, come with me to my allotted territory and let's fight against the Canaanites. I will also go with you to your allotted territory. So Simeon went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord handed the Canaanites and the Perizzites over to them. They struck down 10,000 men in Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him, and they struck down the Canaanites and the Perizzites. When Adonai Bezek fled, they pursued him, caught him, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Needless to say, Judges is a violent book, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Adonai Bezek said 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. God has repaid me for what I have done. They brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. The men of Judah fought against Jerusalem, captured it, put it to the sword, and set the city on fire. Afterward, the men of Judah marched down to fight against the Canaanites who were living in the hill country, the Negev, and the Judean foothills. Judah also marched against the Canaanites who were living in Hebron. Hebron was formerly named Kiriath Arba. They struck down Sheshai, Ahaman, and Talmai. From there, they marched against the residents of Debir. Debir was formerly named Kiriath Sefer. Caleb said, whoever attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer, I will give my daughter Aksah to him as a wife. So Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's youngest brother, captured it, and Caleb gave his daughter Aksah to him as his wife. When she arrived, she persuaded Othniel to ask her father for a field. And as she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what do you want? Verse 15, she answered him, give me a blessing. Since you have given me land in the Negev, give me springs also. So Caleb gave her both the upper and lower springs. The descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, had gone up with the men of Judah from the city of Palms to the wilderness of Judah, which was in the Negev of Arad. They went to live among the people. Judah went with his brother Simeon, struck the Canaanites who were living in Zephath, and completely destroyed the town. So they named the town Hormah. Judah captured Gaza and its territory, Ashkelon and its territory, and Ekron and its territory. The Lord was with Judah and enabled them to take possession of the hill country. But they could not drive out the people who were living in the plain because those people had iron chariots. Judah gave Hebron to Caleb, just as Moses had promised. 
Then Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak who lived there. At the same time, the Benjamites did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. The Jebusites had lived among the Benjamites in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. They sent spies to Bethel. The town was formerly named Luz. The spies saw a man coming out of the town and said to him, Please show us how to get in the town, and we will show you kindness. When he showed him the way into the town, they put the town to the sword, but released the man and his entire family. Then the man went to the land of the Hittites, built a town, and named it Luz. And that is its name still today. Verse 27. As we go into the section, look for the repetition where Israel begins to fail at God's command. At that time, Manasseh failed to take possession of Beth Shean and Tanakh and their surrounding villages, or the residents of Dor, Iblium, and Megiddo and their surrounding villages. The Canaanites were determined to stay in the land. When Israel became stronger, they made the Canaanites serve as forced labor, but never drove them out completely. At that time, Ephraim failed to drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezir, so the Canaanites have lived among them in Gezir. Zebulon failed to drive out the residents of Kitron or the residents of Nahalol. So the Canaanites lived among them and served as forced labor. Asher failed to drive out the residents of Akko or of Sidon or Alab, Akzib, Helba, Afik, or Rehob. The Asherites lived among the Canaanites who were living in the land because... They failed to drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the residents of Beth Shemesh or the residents of Beth Anath. They lived among the Canaanites who were living in the land, but the residents of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath served as their forced labor. The Amorites forced the Danites into the hill country and did not allow them to go down into the valley. The Amorites were determined to stay in Hir Hares, Ajalon, and Shalbim. When the house of Joseph got the upper hand, the Amorites were made to serve as forced labor. The territory of Amorites extended from the scorpion's ascent, that is, from Selah upward. Chapter 2, verse 1. We're almost done. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I had promised to your ancestors. I also said, I will never break my covenant with you. You are not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You are to tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What have you done? Therefore, I now say, I will not drive out these people before you. They will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a trap for you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these words to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. So they named the place Bochim and offered sacrifices there to the Lord. The word of God. If a guy doesn't call you, it's because he doesn't want to call you. Uh, that's a famous line from the 2009 movie, He's Just Not That Into You. 
Now, this movie came out, it was based on a book. And now the movie was very sexual. It was highly sexualized. And there was part of that I actually appreciated because in the movie, they actually authentically show how much pain can come in sexual relationships, particularly in casual sexual relationships. But the other thing I appreciated about this movie is how many people it helped at the time. Like a lot of people realize, you know what? I like that person, but that person is just not into me. And a lot of women really latched onto this movie because it helped them navigate the fact that if a guy doesn't call you, it's because he doesn't want to call you. But not only women were helped, I think a lot of men were helped. A lot of men and women realized that they were pursuing relationships with someone who was half-hearted, with someone who was just not that into them. And I think the movie really brought to light that fact for many people that they were in a relationship where the other person was half-hearted about the relationship. In Joshua 24, right before the book of Judges start, Joshua rallies all the people of Israel and he's like, listen, God has saved us from Egypt. He saved us from, from being slaves in Egypt. And he's about to lead us into this promised land. And as we go into this promised land, I'm going to worship the Lord with all my heart. What are you gonna do, people? And he asks the people, he says, listen, if it doesn't please you to worship the Lord, choose for yourselves today. But as for me and my house, once we go into that land, I am not gonna worship idols. My family's not gonna worship idols. We're gonna worship the Lord. Are you with me? And the people have every opportunity to say, you know what, we're not in. We don't really feel this, but they don't. They tell Joshua, we're with you. When we go into that promised land, we're gonna obey the Lord. We're gonna worship the Lord. We're gonna do exactly what he says. And in verse 23, if you can go to the next slide, Joshua says, if, that's, if you're in, then get rid of all your foreign gods that are among you and turn your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. But even as that happens, even as Joshua says, are you in with the Lord? Are you gonna worship him? It's almost like there's this narrator in the background. Have you ever seen those clips where like someone goes, like Sally calls Stephanie and Sally's like, Stephanie, are you okay? And Stephanie's like, yeah, I'm fine. And then the narrator in the background goes, Stephanie was not fine. (laughs) That's what's happening right here. Israel, will you worship the Lord? And they go, we will worship the Lord. And the narrator goes, they would not worship the Lord. That's what's about to happen here. Because Israel is half-hearted. They're half-hearted about their relationship with God. Now, now half-heartedness plagues us all. If you've been in a relationship where you have been wholehearted and the other person has been half-hearted, you know how painful that can be. But half-heartedness isn't just something that's towards us, it's also something that's in us. Have you ever been half-hearted towards a job? You just didn't want to show up. Have you ever been half-hearted towards a relationship that you were in? Like you were just kind of holding on, but you didn't really see it as a long-term thing. Have you ever been half-hearted? Or have you ever been half-hearted about your relationship with God? Have you ever been half-hearted about your relationship with God? 
Well, the way that you and I know that we're half-hearted about our relationship with God has to do with our willingness to obey him. When Jesus rises from the dead, right before he ascends into heaven to rule and reign at the right hand of the Father, he gives his disciples this command. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. Part of a relationship with Jesus is that we are learning and seeking and growing and obeying him more and more and more and more. And if we look at the commands of Jesus, and if we look at the commands of God, and we find that we're half-hearted about them, that means we're half-hearted about our relationship with God. Because so often we look at the commands of God and we say, well, it's just not practical for me to obey that command. Uh, it, it's just not convenient for me to follow Jesus with that area of my life. It's not really comfortable for me to do what Jesus told me to do. And so there's a sense where we can relate to what's happening in Israel as they're told to drive out the inhabitants from the promised land. They, they look and they see a challenge ahead. Now we know that God was with them because they've already driven out the inhabitants of Jericho. Do you remember that story in Jericho where they walked around the wall seven times and God just used their marching and their yelling to bring down an entire city? And not only that, we see in the beginning of Judges that he's with them. The Lord answered, Judah is to go first. I have handed the land over to him. I've done it. It's a promise. And then Judah goes into the land and they find that in fact, the Lord has handed the Canaanites and the Perizzites over to them. We can obey because God has promised. And then in the next few verses, we see that there's these people, Caleb and Othniel and Oxal, and they're all like, they're all in with God's commands. They're like, we're going to do this. We're going into the promised land. We're going to obey him. His promises are true. And then that's where it kind of stops. That's where we see the half-heartedness half -heartedness start to creep into the hearts of the people of Israel. That section I pointed out to you, there's seven times where it says the people didn't drive out the inhabitants. They failed to drive out the Canaanites. They compromised on what God had commanded them to do. And from our viewpoint, uh, they have some pretty good reasons for compromising. They have some pretty good reasons for not obeying. I mean, in verse 19, it says they couldn't drive out the people who were living in the plain because those people had iron chariots. Not just chariots, but iron chariots. During the Iron Age, this was the new technology. This is like having drones. This is a huge military advantage. And so it, it seems almost impossible that the people could obey God and drive out these people who had chariots. It, it just doesn't make any sense. It, it was impossible for them. That seems like a good reason not to obey. But not only that, not only did they see it as impossible, they, they saw it as impractical to obey. In verse 27 and verse 28, it says that Manasseh, the tribe of Manasseh, failed to take possession of the land because the Canaanites, well, they were determined to stay in the land. They didn't want to leave. And when Israel became stronger, they made the Canaanites serve as forced labor but never completely drove them out. Now you remember, they're not supposed to do that. But it just seems more practical 
If the Canaanites don't want to leave, maybe we should let them stay. And you know what? We're stronger now, so why don't we use them as our slaves? That would just be more practical than obeying God. Impossible and impractical are often the reasons that we don't obey God. It's impossible to do what God says. It's impractical to do what God says. It's impossible for me to really forgive that person. I can't fully do that. They've, they've hurt me so much. It's, it's impossible. It's impractical for me to really get away from that tempting relationship. I mean, me and this person, we, we work together, right? And so I don't really think it's practical for me to put a barrier between me and them. It's impossible for me to be generous with my money, to give to the poor and to give freely. I just, I just don't think I can. It's impractical for me to keep this baby that wasn't planned. It's impossible for me to remain sexually pure. Who can do that in this day and age? It's impractical for me to tell the whole truth. It's just, it's just easier not to tell the whole truth, right? It's impossible so I can't obey. It's impractical, so I can't obey. Now, even though the people had chariots that they were fighting against, we see a totally different attitude from Joshua before he dies. We see it not as impossible, but possible with the Lord's help. In Joshua 17, Joshua shares with the people that, listen, uh, these people have iron chariots but you have many people in great strength. You can drive them out, even though they have the chariots. Joshua sees the situation not from impossible, but we can obey because it's possible with God. When things look impossible for you to obey, see it through eyes of faith first. Then when it comes to impractical, the way to get around disobeying because it's impractical is not to just see it with eyes of faith, but to see it plain. An angel of the Lord shows up, and in, in verse two, chapter 2, verse 2, he says, this is what you were told to do. You were told to not make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You, you weren't supposed to get in these binding relationships with them. You weren't supposed to honor their altars. You were supposed to tear down their altars of worship but you have not obeyed, what have you done? Did you notice that in the verses before this, it says they couldn't drive them out? But here, the angel of the Lord is telling the peace people of Israel, it's not that. It's not that you couldn't. It's that you wouldn't. You didn't stick with it long enough. You say, I can't. God says, no, you won't. Challenging for our hearts. I mean, maybe we could say it this way. Okay, if a guy doesn't call you, he doesn't want to call you. But if you're not obeying what God has commanded, you don't want to obey what God has commanded. Now, now listen, we're not talking about perfection. We're not talking about performing for God. Rather, we're talking about our half-heartedness towards God. 
our half-heartedness towards the God who loves us and has saved us. See, see, not obeying because it's not practical is still not obeying. And so where in your life are you saying, I can't, but God is saying to you, no, it's not that you can't, it's that you won't. You won't. And if we're honest, there's something in our heart, if there's honest, we would say, maybe it's that, God, I'm just not that in you. Something for us to, to think about. I mean, l- listen, when my wife and I dated, we dated for about a year, and then we broke up for five years, and then we got back together. And when we got back together, I was into her. And I was crazy. Like, I would get off work at 11 p.m. when I was working in St. Louis, and I would get in the truck, and I would drive five hours straight to see her in Memphis and pull in at like 6 a.m., one time I got a $300 speeding ticket because I was like, I'm making this happen. I'm into her. I'm going. You know, you know can, can we think about our own relationship with God that way and our willingness to obey him? Do we find any reason to get out of it that we can? Or are we all in? Are we going as hard and as fast as we can towards obeying him? Because what happens when we begin to compromise, when we begin to give into our half-heartedness, is things begin to decay in our own life. And that's exactly what happens through Israel. That spiritual decay happens in this book. It just gets worse and worse for them. And the angel says to them in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, listen, uh, because you have not obeyed, I will not drive out these people before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a trap for you. In other words, he's saying, listen, I'm going to give you exactly what you chose. You chose not to obey. I'm going to let you pursue your disobedience. And the result of that is that these people that you did not drive out like I told you to, they are going to be a thorn in your side for years to come. And they're gods that you're not supposed to worship. You are going to find them more and more attractive and struggle to worship me. God lets them have the consequences of their disobedience. That, that's part of God's judgment. Like when we think about God judging, we're like, God comes in with like a wrecking ball. But, but it's not really like that in Scripture. There's, there's times that it's like that. But part of God's judgment is he gives you exactly what your rebellious heart wants. That's scary to me. That's when I pray, Lord, don't take the, the conviction away. Like, warn me. Come in and, and convict me when, when I'm not listening to you. And some of us might say, well, God would never do that. In God's love, he, he, would, he wouldn't let me go the wrong way. But you have to understand when God gives a command, that is him preventing you from going the wrong way. You just don't listen. What if God lets you live with the consequences of your half-heartedness? What if God lets you experience the full results of your disobedience? What if he allows you to go on the trajectory of your rebellion? Uh, God is trying to stop you by giving you his commands. Will you listen? His commands are because he loves you. 
it gets worse for, for the people. In, in verse 4 and 5, they realize, oh my goodness, we have blown it. The angel of the Lord had spoken these words to all the Israelites, and the people wept loudly. So they named the place Bochim and offered sacrifices there to the Lord. That They realized that they have chosen to disobey God on a massive level and break the covenant that he has made with them. And here's the hard part. They're sad, but they're not repentant. And we know they're not repentant because we just keep reading the book of Judges and they just keep doing it again and again and again. And in the book of Judges, there's just not much hope for half-hearted humans like you and me. The hope in the book of Judges comes not from half-hearted humans, but from a whole-hearted God. We didn't read verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says that the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal. What's the angel of the Lord doing in Gilgal? Why does that matter? Why is he hanging out there? Gilgal is the place where God made his covenant promises with his people as they entered in the promised land. It was the place where they had crossed the Jordan River and God said, I am with you. I am your God. You will be my people. I will empower you. I'm committed to you. I love you. Follow me. I will be with you forever. In fact, that word Gilgal means to roll away. And in Joshua 5.9, the Lord says, today I have rolled away the disgrace of Egypt from you. As the people entered the promised land at Gilgal, it was where God had said, your history does no longer, no longer matters. You are no longer a slave people from Egypt. You are my people. The shame that's over your lives no longer exists. My covenant to you is who you are. Gilgal represents the location of a wholehearted God who made an eternal covenant with his people. And so when the angel of the Lord comes up from Gilgal, we're meant to see that as significant because God doesn't start the discipline of his people with their half-hearted compromise. Rather, he starts with his wholehearted commitment to them, even though they have compromised. God is not half-hearted about half-hearted people. God is all in. He never wavers. He's always fully committed. And we know this because in the New Testament, Paul says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God makes the first move. God makes every move. Everything we do is based on his commitment to us. And see, that's really what the people in Judges missed is if they had remembered who God was, it would have filled their hearts and they would have gone from half-hearted people who don't want to obey to full-hearted people who love the God who loves them. The book of Judges is going to present some challenges for us. It's going to get in the deeper layers of what we think about God 
in our willingness to repent, in our willingness to call it as God sees it. But it doesn't start with our failure. It doesn't start with our half-heartedness. Rather, it starts with God's commitment to us as his people who know Jesus. And so today, as you wrestle with your own life and where you are, maybe you're here today and you're like, you know what, if I'm honest, just not that into God. Own that. Don't hide from that. Don't pretend it's not true. But as you examine your own sin and rebellion, because we all have it, look, to your, look your eyes to the God who is committed to you, the God who sent his son to die for you on the cross. Christianity is different than any other religion. It doesn't say, because I obey God's commands, God's committed to me. Christianity says, because God is committed to me, I obey his commands. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.